Hello and welcome to Film Ireland Podcast. I have the pleasure of got Tom Burke here, who is uh, publicising his new documentary, Losing Alaska, which is out there in intermittent. It's a few places over a few It's officially weeks. Officially, it's out on October 4th. There's a couple of uh, Q&As before that, but really... October 4th. And look out for it in the IFI. IFI, the Lighthouse, it's in the Omni in Rathmines and a couple of other Omnis. It's down in Cork in the Gate Theatre and I believe it's in the the new cinema in Galway as well. I think it's at Rathmines as well, isn't it? Rathmines, the Omni in Rathmines. I remembered. (laughs) So Tom, I like to get you to tell us what your documentary is about so I can't be accused of making any mistakes. In short, the documentary Losing Alaska is about a small village called Newtok, which is on the western coast of Alaska, on the Bering Sea. And this village of about 350 Yupik natives is being washed away, eroded away by climate change. So the land is falling into the sea year by year. When I first went in 2015, they had about 100 yards or so of land, permafrost land, from the edge of their coastline to the nearest house. And they had seen it retreat by a huge amount before that and they were saying we're going to lose houses soon and I thought there's a hundred yards here you know what's the what's the what's the big panic and in the time that I've been filming over the three or four years I've been filming that hundred yards has disappeared and indeed 10 or 15 more yards have gone and to go into some specific details this is like tundra this is a flatland this is highly exposed to the weather this is a, a, a quite an amazing landscape to visit. Um, so Newtok is on what they call the Yukon-Cuscoquim Delta. So it's between these two enormous rivers, the Yukon, which runs all the way into Canada, and then the Cuscoquim, this huge Alaskan river. And in between those two rivers is this enormous expanse of just flat tundra and, and incredibly sparsely populated. Um, the village of Newtok itself is... 70 miles from Chivak, it's 90 miles from Bethel, it's 40 miles from Tuxuk or Tununuk. So the, once you're in the village, you know, you're very, very isolated. The only way in, there's no road system in that part of Alaska. The only way in is by light aircraft or a couple of days on a boat. So as a as a place to film, it was, I suppose you could say it was an incredible treat. To go there with a camera and to work in that landscape was... Uh, was something else. The, the the land that they're on is supposed to be, it's it's tundra, it's what we think of as tundra, and it's supposed to be permafrost. Now, Just but, to explain permafrost to us, uh, so, I, I know some listeners will, will say frost, I get that, but what's a permafrost? So permafrost, if you imagine an Irish, like a, a boggy landscape, a kind of a peaty boggy landscape, which is what it resembles in summertime. In summertime, you feel like you're walking on a kind of a, a a softish bog. Um, but even in summertime, you're supposed to you dig down about two feet and you should hit frozen ground. So there's a point at which the land never unfreezes. So the top, roughly the top two feet of land will freeze over solid in the winter. And in summertime, that top two feet will defrost. That's the normal process. What's been happening year on year is that when that thaw period comes in the spring, the the thaw or the unfreezing is going down further than two feet. So the land is, is losing some of its integrity. And then winter comes later. Winter is supposed to come late October. Sometimes now they don't have snow on the ground until Christmas. Winter comes later and then winter is shorter. So that permafrost that's supposed to begin two feet down and continue all the way down is less and less permanently frozen, if you'll excuse the pun. And what that means is when the waves come in and hit the exposed part of the coastline, when it was permanently frozen, the land could kind of repel the waves and repel the storms. It's now softer, it's looser, it's wetter. And when the storms come in, and you'll see this in the documentary, the waves are able to undercut the land and it just it gets undercut, undercut, falls down. That piece gets washed away and then the cycle begins again. And the big marker on this exponential damaging change in the environment has been since it's 1977, I think, isn't it? Well, they have been recording it. Yeah. So they were, they have been seeing this go on since the 70s. They started recording it. 
And it was in the late 90s that they said, OK, if things continue at this rate, we're, we're going to have to move the village. And indeed, things have accelerated since then. Um, they thought they would they thought they would have a problem, you know, I think by 2030 or by the by the first third of this century. Um, but here we are in 2019 and the they, they have technically already lost five houses worth of ground. So it has moved much more quickly than even they thought. The likes of Sarah Palin have you have totally denied anything going wrong and it seems such an obvious one. But is it just the old same principle as to explain to flat earthers that the earth is round and trying some science on them? Why are they in such denial when it seems so obvious? Well, so the village themselves are not in denial at all, obviously. Oh, yeah, because they, they can see the results. They see it happening every season. Every autumn season is when this happens the most. So they have been lobbying actively since about 96 when they started forming a plan identifying a new site and, and beginning the process. It's like anything else, they need funding and they need help. The, the the powers that be in the state of Alaska, it's not so much, you know, denial of climate change that's the problem. It's much more like you've got 350 people who nobody really cares about. Really cares about. Um, now, they can be made to care about them, but, you know, as, as in terms of their political capital, there are 350 people in a native Alaskan village living a mostly subsistence lifestyle. If they were further south in the area of um, Bristol Bay and Dutch Harbour, there would be commercial fishing. So they would have... It would be business. They'd have some leverage there. If they were further north and even up on the, what they call the northern slope, there would be oil there are platinum mines, there are mineral deposits that the tribes often have control of. So they would have leverage there. Where Newtok is, the truth is nobody nobody outside of there really cares about them. So it's been very hard for them to create that kind of political momentum. Uh, it's important to note as well, they, they do subsist a lot on their own ability to hunt to survive. Give us a bit of colour on the day-to-day -day existence of these people. I mean, they go to, the kids go to school, but there's still a very tight environment and not many seem to escape the local community. They're still part of that area for many, many generations. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I kept going back is in some ways, it's a really, really wonderful place to be. So you, the negatives are, are there in the film. You know, there is no sanitation. There's no running water. It's very isolated. It's often very cold. Um, okay, fine. Once once you kind of deal with those things, you know, imagine a village that is almost entirely populated by your close relatives or long-term family friends. It's an incredibly close-knit... I come from a peninsula like that. Well, there you go. <laughs> there's there's a huge comfort and freedom and, and warmth that comes from being from a place like that. Um, a total sense of belonging, a total sense of ownership of the place... Um, they also then <clears throat> have this huge amount of freedom because with all of that isolation comes freedom. There's no police officer in the village. There are no traffic lights. There are very few. The kids in particular have um, tremendous freedom to just go where they want to go and, and experience their life on the tundra the way they want, they want to. The connection to food is massively important. And we, we try and show some of that in the film that... They live off the land month by month following whatever animal is either moving through or whatever animal is kind of... And up. that it's being affected by what's going on with global warming as well. Not as much as you would think. Okay. Actually, that's not so much of a problem where they are. I know further north in the Yukon, they've got problems with the salmon and the water temperature and whatnot. But where they are, the salmon run at a particular month in, in the summertime, they go catch salmon. Before that herrings lay their eggs on the rocks on the beaches nearby they go and they collect the herring eggs and then a month after that they go and catch herring and then after the salmon there's the halibut after the halibut there's moose then muskox and then in the winter they shoot they shoot geese all year round as far as i know geese and ducks uh tamarins other birds that we wouldn't have uh one of the great <laughs> things i had great fun discovering which I think all Dublin people should be aware of, is that seagull eggs are delicious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know this. Um, and given, 
you know, that we have plenty of seagulls here. I think we should be harvesting their eggs. Um, we and went and cut down on the little buggers. <laughs> well, or at least you know, get some food benefit from the fact that we have loads I have of them. Hoat. It's like a, a kingdom of seagulls there. So, my father used to actually do his own little cull, and he'd remove at least one egg. He wouldn't take them all out because they tend to use all of the residences around Hoat as their little <laughs> kind of what's the word? The rookery, like a rookery, but a, yeah, a little breed, a little nesting grounds. And yeah, so we'd had seagull eggs now and again. Yeah, so what we did, um, and it didn't, it's a, it was a lovely sequence, but it didn't make it into the film because it didn't, there just wasn't space for it. Um, we went harvesting seagull eggs and in many nests there would be six eggs and they would take all of our two and they would pick them up and um, turn them around and if it seemed like the egg had turned into a fetus, they'd leave it. They'd leave it. Um, so that was, that's... That way of life, that genuine connection it's, to the it's land. It's a part of their kind of religious beliefs, the sort of uh, animalism. And uh, I mean, quite, it's quite a respectful attitude towards hunting. And they're still quite religious about it. Well, not spiritual about it. You've got um, the funny thing, again, for an Irish Did audience you find is that? they're Catholic. Yes, I noticed that. At some point, somebody somebody pitched up in a, in a boat uh, in the late 19th century, I think. You had Christian and Catholic missionaries... I went up there and it was quite contagious around that time. That time, I find <laughs> so there's a and they went to some very remote places. So yeah, even New Tuck. the Russians had been there. Of course, the Russians controlled Alaska from kind of 1740 onwards. They would have instilled an amount of Christianity via Russian Orthodoxy, and then you had Catholic missionaries after that. But I always think I never really got into it in the film because it never really seemed much of a part of day to day life. But I like that line from the field from John B. Keane, where the priest says, you know, there's only a thin veneer of Christianity painted onto these people <laughs> and that actually underneath it's it's pagan to the core. But what you're saying, it does apply because, yeah, notionally they're Catholic and you'll see there's sacred hearts in some of the houses, which yeah, for an so, Irish yeah. audience is, is quite interesting. But nobody really, that wasn't front and centre in anybody's Belief system. And there's no church representation within the, in that. There is a little area, church. Is there? there is a little oh, church, but I never saw the priest. Okay. So it never. He doesn't live there. So again, it, it didn't seem strong enough to feature in the film. But what Raman says, the way Raman talks about the spirituality of hunting, that stuff goes deep. That yes. stuff is going back generations and generations. How do you think about going after the seal? How do how do you go about it? How do you do it in a way that's respectful? How do you do it in a way that is not going to um, decimate the population. Mm. They're very, anytime pe people would often wander into my, uh, I used to sleep on the floor of the library in the school. And if there was nothing going on, people would, would randomly come in and talk to me. And usually the talk was always about, what are we hunting next? What's next week? Somebody was always, I'm fixing my boat because next week we're going after this. Or I'm fixing my snow machine because next week we're going after this. The idea of what they're hunting next is always in the front of their mind. So that stuff, that sustainable lifestyle, that balance with the land is is real. And and not in any kind of a kind of idealistic way, in a very, very practical way. If I don't get Raman needed to get a seal that day because he hadn't got one in the two weeks before. And they need the seal for all sorts of things, you know? So that, that side of it's mm -hmm. very interesting. But to go back a bit, what was the impetus for you to say, okay, I'm going to explore this as a documentary? Was it the global warming? Was it the danger of this culture, this village being kind of losing its place and these people being uh, uplifted and moved? Well, where, where was the attraction or the interest for you? Um, I think because this is a Film Ireland <laughs> conversation, I, th I think I have more freedom. Um, I'm not... <sighs> Climate change and environmental topics are not at the front of my mind. I didn't think it's, it's time for my climate change film. I've done I've done lots of different types of films on lots of different types of topics. Um, so I wasn't, that wasn't at the front of my mind. I read the stories in The Guardian about the village and they were, they were good and well written and quite compelling and they, and they introduced lots of characters. And I thought primarily here is a story about a small place and it's a small place facing a big threat and I always like 
microcosms. I think if you're going to try and tell a big story, sometimes you want to do it through the prism of a, of a small situation. So New Talk kind of offered that. It also then, so that's kind of the community element. When you plug in the climate change element, one of the problems I always thought with communicating climate change or films about climate change um, is what you point a camera at. So even you've got an inconvenient truth, which is very valuable in its own way. It's it's facts and figures and science, or you've got DiCaprio's before the flood and after the flood. But again, it's hard to visualize some of these abstractions, a half a point of increase, a half a percent increase in, or a half a degree rather, increase in temperature, or a half a centimeter rise in sea level. You know, those are kind mm -hmm. of abstractions. And I think yeah. that's one of the challenges of talking about climate change, by the way. So here was a village where it's not really up for debate and it's very easily uh, filmable. You can point a camera at that coastline and over three years watch it disappear. That's real. Yeah. That's that's not up for discussion. It's a physical truth. It's also visual. It's a it's a yeah. it's a visual um reality. So that so that's good. Um and then the third leg of all of that is the tribal dispute. So here you've got a you've got a small place. They're being affected by climate change unambiguously. They're trying to move the village. So all of the all these elements are, are good. And then you find out... Just to quantify the tribal change for our listeners, that basically there was those who wanted to move and those who wanted to stay, wasn't it? And uh, At the start, yeah. that, that was the divide because you had this... Um, you had the new council and the old council. You can imagine any village in Ireland. Mm -hmm. You can imagine that happening. It's not Alaska-specific or UPIC-specific. It's just human nature. You've got a small place. You've got these little... These um, fiefdoms... But the so again, that was the third element that made me think. Okay, there's there's there are different layers to the story, and there's a bit of depth. Mm -hmm. The tribal dispute is actually quite fundamental because the traditional council, their point of view is in Yupik culture, the elders run the village. The elders, by virtue of seniority, they populate this council. We look up to our elders, we respect our elders, and we look to them and their collective earned wisdom, and they'll tell us what to do. So there's plenty of merit in that, and that is the way a lot of these villages have been run for a very long time. And this was early in your time frame where you spotted all these elements that would make interesting storytelling. Yeah, so I would have been reading about the place in 2013 and 2014 uh, and making my first inquiries before going there. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm reaching out to them in 2014. I'm on the phone to them. I'm emailing various people, all of whom are saying, if you come here, we'll talk to you. There's no, you know, if you're thinking of coming here, you should come here. We'd like our story to be told. There's no, there's no blockage there. But the, the old council, so they have that position on, on tradition and seniority and whatnot. The new council are taking the position that if we're, if we're Americans living in the 21st century, surely we should vote for the most competent people the most capable people mm -hmm. to run the village. So, you so know. Kind of new ways coming in defying the old methodology. Yeah, it's it's a modern democratic approach rubbing up against this traditional tribal approach. Now, the village, or the film doesn't say one is necessarily right or wrong, well, but that, that's a very hard thing, thing to bridge. One thing I admired about your storytelling is that you presented everything. There was no sense of an agenda there that you wanted us to think one way or another way. You gave everybody's opinion and, and thoughts and ideas. Which is, I think, a skill in documentary that a lot of people don't have. Because that's when you veer into, into pure propaganda. Yeah, and you're just pointing someone. Look at this. You know, that was very. That that was one reason I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I, that's very hard to do because obviously you have a subjective point of view when you go in, and also you might guard against people because you say, "Oh, I don't want to see that part of the story. I don't think it's necessary." And I'm sure you did see things like that and a whole other side to the village. I I I, I had a brilliant interview with a. Uh, Australian documentary maker years ago called Dennis O'Rourke I'm sure you know him he did The Lady of Bangkok oh, yeah. and he did one called Kunamulla and it reminded me of your documentary because he went to Kunamulla and he was doing a thing on the outback and divisions and divides and he chose a story a certain way 
and he got into an awful trouble with the rich and wealthy people coming over because they were saying, are you saying it's a fucking welfare town we have on the outback? You know, <laughs> but you can't tell everybody's story. No. But, but, so tell me about those difficulties for you as a filmmaker. And also you made friends and you stepped into people's community. You're, you're the, you know, the anthropologist who stepped into the environment and goes, well, it's not the environment anymore. <laughs> but, tell me about those things. Yeah. Well, I... I'll, I'll take the compliment uh, first <laughs> off, so thanks for that. Well, it was very, very much meant. <laughs> I, um, I think if you're going to make a documentary, if that's really what it's going to be, you can't really have a dog in the fight in terms of whose story you're telling or, or what way you want it to go. Now, obviously, all these decisions are subjective. Every time I press record, I'm making a subjective decision. Every time I do an edit, I'm making another one. So that's fine. But my own, from my own personal experience, I, I began the story thinking Stanley Tom was the villain and Tom John was the good guy. And that what we were going to see was that Stanley Tom would be vanquished and Tom John would succeed, ideally, over the three-year time frame. Um, now, of course, it's very foolish to have a plan like that in documentary. You have to speculate. You have to have a sensibility of where it might end up. Yeah. You, you, by virtue of the funding process, first of all, you, you have to kind of pitch, here's how I think this will go. Here's, here's what it's about. You know, years ago, people would say, when you were pitching a documentary, what's the ending? <laughs> you know, with a big smile and you go... I don't know. Give me some money and I'll find out. Alaska uh, falls into the sea. Yeah. <laughs> what, like, what do you want the ending to be? Um, Paul Duan is very good on this. He says, you know, you have to, so the ending is, is the thing that you have to try to achieve um, because there's no ending really. Life goes on. Um, so, just, but to get back to your question, I had it in my mind. I had my own preconceived notions. Stanley Tom was this kind of what we'd call a Gambian man. He's kind of the corrupt politician, is he? He was accused of corruption and actually it was proved that funds were misappropriated. That's what precipitates an election. That's why there's two councils. That's why everything gets stuck. So there was, there is evidence and there is a finding against him, much like there are findings against some of our own politicians. Um, so I thought, okay, that's, that's part of it. But actually, as it as it rolls on, you realize that the bureaucracy, the state and federal bureaucracy that the village is fighting is so so thick and so dense and so um, indifferent at lots of times that actually maybe you need a Stanley Tom. Which is part of what your ending shows. Yeah. That indifference is still huge. Maybe you need a Stanley Tom character to cut through that. Maybe you need a slightly corrupt character to work those systems. You know, if he is that guy and if Tom John is the more straight ahead, honest guy, maybe it's not clear which guy is better in, in that situation. So those those things are there to be are there to be read, I guess. Again, you got access to these people. It would have been harder for your documentary storytelling if you hadn't got access to all the voices. So day one, I arrive in the village. Now, bear in mind, but before I go there, because as I say to anybody, students or anybody else. Uh, Sorry, who was the first person welcoming you to come along and tell the story? But th th this is part of it. I reached, I, I straight away from, from reading about the divide, I said I can't reach out to one than the other. So I reached into what I consider to be the middle, which is Grant Kashtuk, the, the school principal. And I asked his advice and he said, both tribal leaders would be happy to talk to you because they both, they both have their, their they want their own... Um, story told. So I, I emailed them almost simultaneously and I got responses quite quickly, both of them saying, yes, there's a story here. Yes, the village will welcome you. Because my question is, lads, if I fly halfway around the world, am I going to get a door closed in my face? So access is key, always access. So I there was emails and then there were some phone calls. The reason there's phone calls is do you want to fly halfway around the world to talk to somebody who's monosyllabic and isn't going to be a very good communicator? When I got to speak to them on the phone, it, it was amazing because you can hear in the film that rhythm, that yupik rhythm mm -hmm. that they speak in is, is very melodious. It's, it's got its own um, syntax and it's, it's quite compelling. So I, once I started speaking to them on the phone, I was like, well, 
I, I definitely have to go. Day one, I land in the village after 36 hours of flying. And I'm greeted at the little airstrip by Tom John, leader of the new council. Without Now, this was, wasn't arranged. He just showed up because he's a nice man. He said, oh, you know, I thought somebody should welcome you to New Talk. Oh, okay, great, thanks. And I'm jet lagged and I'm, you know, I'm not in good shape at that point. So he, I get in the back of his sled, which is connected to his snow machine. It's March. It's minus 35 degrees. He drives me from the airstrip, which is about six, seven hundred yards down to the school and introduces me to Grant and they show me where I'm going to be staying. And that's fine. So now I've met Tom John and I've met uh, Grant. And actually in that process, I meet Raman somehow on day one. Mm -hmm. And and Raman is, you know, Raman is proves to be very important. Once I get my stuff settled, I'm like, right, I've met Grant and I've met Tom John. I need to go and meet Stanley Tom. So I find out where his house is. I walk down to it and he's sitting there watching. I never forget. He's watching Bering Sea Gold on Discovery Channel at like at five or six o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, I come in. I say hello. I say I'm the I'm Tom Burke. I've been we've been speaking. And he says, Tom Burke, you're working with the new council, and you can get out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm. Oh Christ. So you weren't a novelty over there as an Irishman, no? <laughs> no, well, he doesn't, you wouldn't, it'd be hard to impress Stanley Tom. Um, he's very worldly and he's very clever. Um, and he basically said, you were seen in Tom John's sled. You're working with them. You've come here to work with them. Get out of my house. And and you had numerous conversations with this man before. Oh yeah, before all. This. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, th- whatever it was, um, probably the combination of the jet lag and the tiredness and the smelly clothes and everything else. Um, so he he, pretty much shouted that at me, and so I shouted back at him that what kind of an idiot did he think I was to fly halfway around the world to only talk to one side of the mm-hmm. story. So I, I don't remember what I said, but I kind of, I just laid into him. You impressed him? For a couple of minutes. I told him he was a f- fucking idiot. Um, or, or that I would That'll be. Work sometimes. Or that I would be an idiot to yeah. do that. And, you know, why would I do that? To think about it. And he thought about it. And he went and was probably happy that I stood up to him. And then he said, okay, we'll do an interview tomorrow. And that was, that was the start of. That. that was a good start. So tell me, you, you spent four four years, including your editing uh, and your prep. How many visits did you make to Alaska when you were shooting? It was seven visits in total over the th- three and a half years of filming. So seven visits, and each visit was between two and three weeks. Okay. Now the reason the reason the visits were so long did you, is did you try did you try and make sure there were different times a year? Yes. Yeah. So all of that was. And that's massively important because my first trip was in March and everything is totally frozen solid and they live a certain way in the winter. Yeah. So they move around on snow machines and four wheelers in the winter. There's no water visible. Everything is frozen solid and they're, they're ice fishing and they're hunting for large game, the, the moose and the muskox. And that's what's going on in summertime. It's like a completely different place. It's much more like the Everglades or something. There's water and, and, and swamp Yeah, everywhere. there's not so much of the summertime, but you have it in there. And it is amazingly the, the, the difference in, in, in the area. Hmm. Did you, you, you were guiding, being using the structure of the conflict as a guide for how you were going to approach the filming? Or did you have a few more ways into your material that you knew that if something else changed, that you were going to go a different way? What way were you thinking when you were that point where you'd gotten thing you'd build up a momentum um i think the conflict was something i thought i would follow as it played out i figured it would resolve itself at some point and and indeed it did um which you'll see in the film yeah uh, and and not, and not the way you expect either i suppose you could you could argue that there was certain yeah. things that happened we won't go we won't Spo- give we won't give away alert, the, the entire film but it, it there's an interesting turn in there all right yeah, and obviously you can't plan. Yeah, and that would not have been something that you were thinking about no. for a str- any stretch. No. And it also led to another 
question or discussion about what it means for these people to live there because the, the thing that always cracks my head is like these people are in an amazingly tough environment to begin with mm. and then to find out wow my tough environment is falling away from me mm. <laughs> so that's like a but unbelievable they, but they are tough you know, oh yeah I don't tell them they are tough so the tribal conflict was kind of one thread the effort to relocate the village is another thread but in a way they're kind of their background or their their context, what what you get into or what I got into then is, what's it like to live there? So, what's Raman's daily life? You know, what's Bosco's daily life? Tell us a bit about Raman, by the way, because he's a key figure in there, and he doesn't really fill either of the agendas in in a political way. Would you agree? He's, yeah, he's more of the the soul of the piece. I would yeah. describe him. Raman, like Raman, is a is an amazing communicator and a a, a thinker. Um, he's he's a very much a creature of the tundra. You could put Raman down anywhere on that landscape, and he would know but what you, to do. You couldn't imagine him outside that environment ever. He's been outside that environment. He went to college. He went to university in Fairbanks for right, yeah. for two years. I think he lived in Anchorage for a while. Um, but he is living and breathing all of these Yupik traditions, and when it's working for him. It's working really well. Um, he has a poetic way of speaking. So he represents, and you know, he's not alone in that. He he was very representative of kind of a, a group of people in the village who were living their sustainable lifestyle in a in a very real way, and not in a not in any kind of a superficial way. As I say, th- that stuff you know goes really deep mm-hmm. with them. So Raman kind of fulfills that role. In the in the film, um, Harold. The story of Harold is different because Raman is feeling the pressure of, am I able to live in this place? You know, it's costing me certain things to live in this place. Do I want to move to the city and have a real job and have a car and all of that, um, or do I want to live this traditional lifestyle that is difficult and somewhat dangerous but really really fulfilling? Harold is on the other side of that where he's thinking. I've got all these kids. It's too difficult here. It's just too difficult. There, There isn't a house for them. The kids are getting sick because there's sewage everywhere. So Harold moves to the city and realizes what's he, what he's lost, you know? So getting into the... The, the bigger issues are kind of the, the context in a way. And then getting into the smaller human stories I think is, is where it comes alive so when you arrived there you camera was quickly pulled out for interviews and that how quickly did you get to know the community and be and find where you were relaxed to turn the camera on them that you'd done the proper work and the handshakes and how, what were they like dealing with the, with with that not intrusion some of them might enjoy it other people, people more guarded in the 21st century to cameras and they would have been 50 years ago I think would they like that or were they it's, interested? It's funny. I think that I think what you're saying is true, but it cuts both ways. You've got you've got some people who are more guarded because they know what a camera is and what it can do. And you've got some people then the way the internet is now, you know, anyone below a certain age is completely unfazed by the camera. So actually there was only a couple of people whose reaction to the camera was, was problematic. Younger people it was as natural as, as talking. And older people, they were just naturally unguarded. So I, I didn't have that many problems in that regard. But I, I will say this. On the first trip, because it was so far and because it cost so much to do that first trip, I was fairly mercenary about getting as much material as I possibly could. So I did, I did an awful lot of interviews, more than I, way more than I used. And I filmed all the time. I filmed as much as I possibly could. So I was there for 12 days in total because I thought, I don't know when I'll get to come back here. So I uh, need to get as much of this in the can as I possibly can. How much were you thinking about your stylistic sensibilities? Oh, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll come back to that. Because, <laughs> yeah, that all relates to the temperatures. <laughs> I, was the, gonna, I was going to say, the, first the, trip, oh, the technical thing was the next question. There were, there were limits. <laughs> There's limits to what you can do. Um, so I was very mercenary, I think. I, I filmed more than I would have 
under normal circumstances. Um, what happened then was they're used to people coming in. They were used to news crews coming in, doing a piece for a day, day and a half, and then going. So straight away, I'm in for 10, 12 days, and they're like, oh, okay, the Irish guy is still here. Okay, so that, that yielded a certain response. At the end of the first trip, I said, I'll, I'll be back in the summer. And they went, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. So then when I showed up in July, a few months later, they're like, oh. They remembered you. Oh, the Irish guy's <laughs> back. Okay. Uh, okay, fine. So again, more conversations, more more uh, deepening of the relationships. And at the end of that trip, I said, I'll be back in the spring. Nah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the Irish guy has enough now. And when I showed up the following April, that's when every everybody really, Raman, I'm thinking Raman, Bosco, Grant, and Harold, they were like, okay, this guy's for real. Um, and that's when the doors really started opening. Mm -hmm. And that's when the doors opened and I started using the camera less because I, they were inviting me in for tea, they are inviting me in for dinner, things that I didn't necessarily want to film, but they were telling me everything. Did the guys have seen the documentary? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and did you go to them? I flew I flew to the village. That was trip seven yeah. where I, f I flew over without a camera and showed the film to the whole village. So we projected it on the wall of the gym on the whole, well. In the school. In the school. Yeah. So half the village came out on the first night and then I did. I got stuck because of the weather. I got I got snowed in for five days. So we just kept showing it. Oh, really? Um, and the people <laughs> just kept coming. Um, so the village, I can say, because I did the work of going there and showing it to them, with, the, with only one or two exceptions, the village are very happy with the film. And the village, um, the main characters and the people in it have said to me, you know, that's us. We, we recognize ourselves, um, which is... I think as a documentary maker, I think that's a massively important part of the process Yeah, to be able to do that. Um, now, it's a bit of a luxury to do that, but I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's earned. I think I mean, you, you put so much of your life into this. Yeah, I um, don't want to be scratching my, I don't want to be back here in Dublin scratching my head wondering if Raman is happy yeah. with the final product. I, want, I need to know that he's happy and, but, and, and lots of other people. And, and at what point do you think they understood what you were trying to do? I don't know if Raman has said this to me, so this might be a bit of a leap. But I think they thought I was just making a film about the erosion. A lot of them did. Yeah. Because Tom is filming the erosion again. And it's a, it's, a, it's a strong part of the marketing, and I think it's good to make sure people know this is not just about the environment. It's about other things is about a culture and it's about yeah. people trying to survive in in a changing world. So I think and, and talk about I mean your microcosm symbolizing the entire fucking planet. Well, it the, is there. <laughs> hope hopefully it can be read that way. Uh I think what Raman and and Bosco and Harold as well um were happy with is that actually it was about the culture. It was about the lifestyle. It was about those challenges of do I try and make my life in this village or do I go to the city? So it, it it did speak to all of those concerns separate from just being a factual story about erosion. So it starts that way. But getting into their lives, I don't think Raman thought it would get into his life so much. And I don't think he thought, because we had very freewheeling conversations about dreams and stories from grandparents and all that. And he was really, really happy that that stuff made it in. And I'm like, well, that's actually the most interesting that's the most interesting thing. You yeah, know? which again, now that brings back to how much of yourself do you feel you kept giving to the documentary in order to get those voices? There's a, there's a certain handshake and a respect between you and your subject matter that would have gained that trust and that kind of conversation to begin with, which did in fact reflect you as a filmmaker. I, I'm probably not far enough away from it yet. Um to know that I do know that one one of the things I do is I frequently uh, work without the camera um, I'll, I'll either be drinking cups of tea a huge part of the process in, yeah in the house and just hanging out and just listening to things and just hearing the language and trying to understand the references so that when it is time to roll the camera 
you you've got that kind of soft research done uh another thing i would do is especially after the first two trips so on on trip 3 i would schedule a day of things i'd be like right i'll, I'll interview this person and then i'm going to go hunting with this person and then somebody else is repairing their snow machine so i'd have three appointments for myself um which are all quite loose and so I'd film quite intensely for a day. And then the next day I would only go out with a sound recorder and I would just wander around. Yeah. And I would, you would fall into situations. A very underrated uh, device for, for some young documentary makers, I think. They don't really appreciate what that does. It's, it's, so I would, I would have a dual function whereby it would give me time to think. It would remove the pressure of having to film or, or achieve a load of footage. I would just record the sounds of airplanes. I would record the sounds of dogs. I'd record the sound of wind on the tundra, which I spent a lot of time doing because it was hard, hard to get it right. But you're walking around with a microphone and people randomly walk up to you then and you start having these conversations. Now you'd, maybe you don't record them, maybe you do. Um, and that opens up different avenues. Mm -hmm. And those a lot of those audio elements then feed into the film because not not everything is a talking head. Um, you can use a lot of those voices in, in voiceover. Did, okay, discuss the, some of the technical problems you had. I mean, as you said, the minus thirty five <laughs> cameras are, do tend to get a bit uh, upset when you put take them out in very cold temperatures. Yes, lenses start to get damaged. Yes, what were you what were you filming on? Um, I was filming on a Sony F three. Okay, so a tough piece of kit. More than up to the task. Yeah, we're a little ad, ad for Sony. If Sony want to sponsor us, please I do. <laughs> F3 is fucking great. Like, it's not a, as as your list, some of your listeners will know, it's not a new camera. No. Um, we see, a lot of new cameras aren't as good as some of the old cameras. It, this thing is a brick, and um, it has been through the wars with me. Um, but I think that one is from 2011 or 2012. It's so great. it's a 1080p. It's a, it's a 2K camera, effectively. Um it, it never missed. It never missed once. Um, all the way down, we got to minus 40 one day and that camera was spot on. Were you doing it in the guard? Like where you'd pack it and wrap it in blankets and stuff like that? Were you doing any of that no, madness? No, no, no. Just keeping it in the bag, careful. And that's, Just being careful with it. Um, that's amazing. So what, what would happen is you'd have your usual problem with lenses fogging up when you're going from warm to cold. So fine, you, you deal mm -hmm. with that. Um, the F3 never missed a beat. It was connected to an Odyssey 7Q Plus recorder. It was fantastic. It even, it even has a little temperature readout on it. So I'd be like, oh, crap, it's minus 39. Um, so that would tell you what the temperature was. The The tripod head, the fluid in the tripod head froze. Okay. Uh, every day. And, and how would you deal with that? Well, actually, the effect of that was the head became rigid, but it became smooth. Okay, so it was actually useful. It was really useful. <laughs> so there's a there's a couple of really slow pans in the film, and they were only possible because the tripod head is totally frozen. Um, so you know, there's a little tip out to you guys out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just freeze your tripod head. But the the uh, piece of technology that failed most frequently was my feet. Um, so what would happen is, especially on that first trip when it was very very cold. Oh, you learned, did you? you I would start to get a burning sensation in my feet. Uh, and I go, oh, that doesn't feel good. And we'd go inside and, and then you'd feel better and then you'd go out again after an hour. And so around about the 40, 45 minute mark in that temperature, my hands were okay. I had good gloves. I had a, I had a very particular I coat. I would had super boots on at that stage, no? The boots, I think, was the weak part of my kit because oh, I had a very good, I had a very good jacket and I had a hat and all of that. There's good footage of me with the icicles on my beard I sent messages home to the kids and they're like is daddy at the North Pole is daddy Santa Claus <laughs> daddy looked like Santa Claus at one point um, but the toes the toes and then the feet would start to burn and it would get painful Yeah, and I'd go inside and after two days of that I said to Raman uh, I was like you know I'm feeling good but like this thing is happening with my feet and he's like that's the beginning of frostbite man <laughs> So that's what that's what frostbite feels when it's starting. Yeah, well, to I was that's what I was going to say. It's like chillblains, but no, it's, it's yeah. So I had to be very careful. So you're okay with the second trip then? You had the boots on there. 
Second trip was warmer. I don't think I, it ever got that cold again. Maybe down to minus 20, but actually minus 20 is not a problem. It's interesting, isn't it? That when you've been to minus 40. Yeah. Yeah. And um, sound-wise, you were saying earlier that you'd get some local help with uh, your sound equipment. Yeah, so... The, the just, sound people don't like to hear things like that. <laughs> no, but, you know, I couldn't afford... I had I had great plans early on. There were lots of different ways you could have financed the film and structured the film. Uh, in one iteration, I was going to go there and I was just, I was going to live there for three months or more and the, and bring a bring crew um, specifically and try and, you know, cast the right people into that role who, who could live there for three months. Um, it didn't work out that way. Mostly the, the financing, as usual, is never, it never arrives exactly when you think it's going to arrive. So you, you make your plans based on that. What I did was I would hire um, an assistant in the village. I think on the first, on, there was Kevin Charles did it a couple of times and I think Bosco did it once and then somebody else. Um, and really that, that, was, that had a dual function. One, I definitely needed somebody to hold the boom. Everything had to be boomed because... Sounds great. There is, a, well, there's, there's two, Brendan Rahel and Steve Fanagan <laughs> cleaned up, <laughs> cleaned up oh, all well, the mistakes. Well, with Python post-production, great. <laughs> and, did a, and did a great job. But everything was on the boom and a, a pretty good boom because the written, you could have no radio mics in the village because there's a mobile phone mast in the middle of the village. Okay. And so you have constant, da, 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 none of the signals um, on the radios would work. So everything's on a boom. Therefore, I needed somebody usually to hold the boom. Um, and that just meant... And that a also, Zoom recorder as well for bringing around what you, was that what you were using there? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So I, on the days when I wasn't filming, I'd have a Zoom and a and the boom mic myself and I would just wander around. Did you film on any other cameras or just stick to the, the that Sony? The... Um, I didn't, but the I commissioned an incredible cameraman called Daniel Zatz who um, was the aerial cinematographer. Oh yeah, of course, yes. So at some point uh, at the end of year one because of course you fly in and fly out of the village so you're always having these these views of it from above and I thought okay, well I, you know, I need to I need some kind of aerial photography and one of the things that you notice when you come in on the plane there was one day I think it was the second trip the cloud cover was such that we came in quite high. So we came in above 10,000 feet, which is quite unusual. And when you were at that altitude, you can really see where the village is situated on that huge curve of the estuary. And I thought, I need to get that. And you won't get that with a drone. And I thought, okay, there must be, there have been great BBC things and great wildlife things, Discovery and whatnot, done in Alaska. There must be somebody mm -hmm. here serving that market. Yeah. There, there must be somebody. And I found him, and his name is Daniel Zatz, <laughs> and he uh, shoots any aerial stuff for the BBC in Alaska. He's, okay, he does huge, a huge amount of work at the highest level. So I reached out to him, and he uh, came on board um, quite early on, and he did a trip. His first trip, I think, was in the spring of twenty sixteen, just as the ice was breaking up. So it's very, it's an interesting time because what it means is. It's because it, it's an epic to see how fragile that little village looks in the midst of, of that tundra. Yeah, so that, yeah. that that vision that I described at the start where you, you're like, here's a tiny village and there's nothing. There's like nothing for miles and miles and miles in any direction. I needed that captured, you know, better than me sticking my phone out the window of a plane. I wanted cinematic. I wanted the best possible quality I could possibly get. And so Daniel Zatz comes along with not a drone, but a helicopter. And I think it's a red dragon with an incredible piece of cannon glass on the front of it. Um, I won't remember the details of it now, mm -hmm. but it's like, it's like a 50 to 100. Yeah. It's a... It's so a, was I worry about matching footage there? It looked no. Like, I mean, it looks perfect. No, no, it's fine. Like the the And again, though, you'd put that down to... Everything I shot was shot in S-Log in quite a flat colour profile. Daniel Zatz did something quite similar. And then you've got Dave Hughes, the colourist yeah. in Wimble Lane, and he does that and nobody does that better than him. 
But what Daniel Zatz brings to it is that cinematic kind of sweep yeah. of here is this village and here is all of that emptiness. And his nature. <laughs> yeah. So that that's a that's an important part of the puzzle, I think. And again, like with anybody else, you don't want to overuse that stuff. You want to no. use it for context, um, which I hope I did. The um the fun story one the opening shot of the the early opening shot of the film that has Raman flying down the runway on the four wheeler, that was shot from the helicopter about twenty feet off the ground, flying backwards. Oh wow. <laughs> because I described what I wanted because I, I had pictured this. I had kind of had a shot list for Daniel before he came. I said, I want this guy on the runway, but the village has to be behind him. Mm-hmm. And he said, right. So, so the way it was oriented. Well, that's our introduction to the, the environment. That, really. that, yeah, that's him bringing yeah. us into the yeah. village. So it's important. Um, and so Daniel is operating the camera and his pilot is called John, this um, incredibly solid veteran of God knows what. <laughs> um, so we're like, okay, but the, the camera was mounted on the alternate ski. And he said, if we shoot this way with the quad going that way, we can't do it because we're shooting across the other ski. So that'll be in the that'll be in the shot. Daniel said, and John said, we could do it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, I said, is that a joke or can you do it backwards? He said, sure, let's let's have a go. So we flew backwards at 50 miles an hour. No bother at all. That guy was, you know, you'd want that guy doing your heart surgery. That guy was <laughs> unflappable, completely unflappable. Uh, so that was a hell of an experience. And then uh, getting up to, getting up to 10,000 feet. I wouldn't be great with heights now myself. Yeah. Cause so did you let him go and do stuff like second unit? Yeah. So what he did for me then, he spent a couple of days with me in the village where we had a couple, had various things set up. Um, and then I asked him, I had asked him to shoot stuff on his way there and on his way out, um, with particular things in mind. Mm-hmm. And that forms the basis of one of the, what we'll just call the Tom John sequence. Um, just that again, getting that big emptiness. Yeah. Cause again, I was always thinking this is for the cinema screen. Yes. Um, and, and that's a, a huge thing for your head to begin with is thinking about it as a cinema a cinematic documentary not a television documentary would you say that affected a lot of way you thought about it yeah it did so from from day one from the first trip the main difference because I've done I've done an amount of television and I've done loads and loads of promos and corporates mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of things and you're used to the kind of the immediacy of, of what that looks like and how you have to frame things um, well there's a particular style you went with as well with your interviews there's always that little slight profile. Yeah. I w- and that was a, a definite choice that has an effect on how you look at the people talking and the way you don't use the environment in a huge way. Like, we're not con- concerned with where they are exactly when they're talking. Yeah. Because the voice is almost a kind of omnipotent kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to challenge myself to do something different. Um, and again, so that there was, there was two ways of doing that one was i have a very nice 20 mil nikon lens which is it's a 20 mil Mm 2.8 and it's a lovely it's a lovely lens in that it's sharp when it needs to be sharp but it can also it does it does depth very nicely so if somebody is within five or six feet you can actually isolate them and have this very nice perspective most of the film is shot on that 20 mil lens some interviews are shot in a 50 and some of the stuff of planes and, and of animals are on a 180, I think. So almost all of the film is shot on those three lenses. The other thing that was different was, like this is this is quite practical, but sometimes this is how it works. The, the screen, rather than using the viewfinder, which is relatively small, mm-hmm. I was using the screen of this Odyssey, which is actually quite big. And so... From day one, I was like, right, you're you're composing shots for a cinema screen. So th- that that bigger viewfinder, if you like, plus the 20mm lens, 
I kept telling myself to come back to go to go yeah, wider. You could have done that with a viewfinder. You you lose sight of track of what it, kind of I think composition. It, you I get think it's harder. I do yeah. think it's harder. I remember being at a talk with Walter Murch um, during this period, and he said when he was editing the English Patient, which was he would have been editing digitally. That was what I think was that his second or was that his first project on digitally? Was it? It might have been his first. Yeah, if it was. wasn't his first, it was his second, but it was an yeah. early digital project. And frequently, he's working on a monitor, so he's not looking at film, he's looking at digital imagery. And what he did, he put a little um, little action figure. Uh, yeah, no, he, he, I, I was at a cardboard cutout yeah. or an action figure to it, give a sense it, of perspective of yeah. what it would be like with someone sitting in, in, the, in the audience yeah. in the cinema. And so I heard that, must have been before I went, and I thought, okay, yeah. I have to think in those terms. So when I'm looking at this, he's probably big also the first man to edit digitally standing up. Yeah, because he probably. comes from the world of Steambacks. Yeah, and he just didn't understand why would you want to sit down editing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> busy here. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting character. Oh, but, fantastic! But that that little note about you put the you put the little person beside the screen to remind yourself that this is not TV. This is not mm. for the small screen. It's going to be 50 feet. And it was effective for you, that little trick, yeah? Yeah, because then I, anytime I looked at the viewfinder, I would catch myself and I would say, how's this going to look big? Is this too cl- Is there too much of a face here? If we're mm. going to show something, show people head to toe, show context, you're allowed, you're allowed to go wider and have more information in mm. the frame. Or then also you're allowed to be just willfully aesthetic sometimes. Because sometimes in the cinema... And this then plays into the edit as well. When you have people in a cinema, you have them. It's very true. You can let things run. You can let things breathe. Uh, A wide shot might sustain itself for 10 seconds because people get to look around. They get to look from side to side of the screen. Whereas with, with corporate work or TV work, you're dealing with diminishing attention spans. Uh, and you're dealing with the phone. You're dealing with the cup of tea, yeah. the and toilet. The, and the information to be fast and hard. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, I'm obviously I'm not the first person to say this, but to, to recognize that difference, because I edit my own stuff, to recognize that difference in pacing early on meant I, I rolled for longer on stuff. I let things breathe more. I panned more slowly. A because of the frozen tripod head, but B, <laughs> but B because I thought I can let yeah, this, well, I can this. let it breathe. One of my, and again, for this would be for the film nerds. One of my favorite little cuts in the film is just that there's a pan from right to left of the frozen village, and then there's another pan from left to right of the same spot from a different angle. It's a cut that doesn't really make sense. I but, remember, yeah, but. Such- it's just it, it, for me. It's a little break. It's a little pace break to say, let's just exhale. We've just received lots of information. I'm gonna effectively do the same shot twice, and let's just let's just pause yeah. because we're about to receive a different part of the narrative. So you must obviously enjoyed the fact that you're. That this is essentially your debut documentary feature, isn't it? Arguably, it for, is for cinema. Anyway, it was like yeah, I made the documentary. Uh, myself and Shane Hogan did about the liberties was was kind of received as a feature doc okay. well, technically it was a collection of shorts but we put it together an, as an a anthology. feature yeah yeah but, so, let's talk about the music um, it's oh a, Christ it's a yeah let's do that score um, again it's a big deal when you bring introduced music into something like this Anybody listening to the podcast should hire Jerry Horan immediately. Yes, I would love to do it so myself. I tell you, he did an amazing job. So Jerry is incredible. And the relationship with Jerry is among the most important, if not the most important, creative relationship um, in this film and in several other films. So uh, my, uh, in terms of process, when I come back from shooting, after each trip, the first sequence that I cut is called For Jerry. So I'll usually talk to him before I go. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly I would have talked to him. I would have sent him like the proposal and sent him ideas early on. And I say, I'm going to this place in Alaska. Here's what I think it's about. I don't know what the place sounds like yet. I don't I don't have a notion of it yet, but there's here's where my head's at. 
So I come back and when I am starting to process the material and, and start to look at it and, and, and figure it out, anything I like, if I start to build a sequence, that sequence is called For Jerry. And then I send that to Jerry and then I go and talk to Jerry because that's, I want him to start thinking about music early on. So one of the reasons that I think the score that he did is so strong is that he has he has also had those three years um, to think about this and develop this. So he's been, every after each trip, he gets a new bank of footage. We have further conversations. We talk about the tone of the place, what we want to achieve, what we don't want to achieve, what are the pitfalls. Can we plug in any of the sounds that come naturally from the village, whether it's the folk music or uh, landscape sounds? How are we achieving scale of those huge, big landscapes? And how are we also achieving intimacy of individual stories? So, yeah, Jerry, is the music is massively important. Couldn't be more important. Beautiful score. Quite judicial use as well, because it, it, um, it's used very sparingly. And when it comes to it, it really does kind of hit you kind of hard. Well, I'm glad you think that. I haven't. I haven't heard anybody, I don't know how much I've talked about the score so far. I thought when I was in, I had the film in uh, Italy a couple of months ago and there was a lot of talk about that. Um, but there were, the the chat there was, shouldn't it be more Yupik music in the score? And that that wasn't the way we we chose to go because they know their Yupik music to be making that suggestion. <laughs> no, I can't imagine. I can't imagine they do. I because I mean, there is do. a little nod to the Yupik tradition with their kind of their, their dance. Yeah, and, the, and I'm sure they've been interested. But like, like uh, there was something quite um, evocative about it, without falling into any kind of cliches or dramaticness. If you get me, I guess it's like melancholy in it. Yeah. I guess the music is great um, on its own merit. Um, and I would like to think that if it works, if it works, it's because of how we're using it. So we're not we're not necessarily using it to make the audience feel any particular way at any particular moment. We're sometimes using it for yeah. pace. Yeah. We're using it to inject pace into things. Um, we're using it to transition. We are using it to to kind of elevate one of the things that Jerry did in the, the the first thing we did together which was the liberties you would take very quite ordinary footage there was a sequence of the butchers loading um, sections of meat out of a truck and throwing them into their butcher shop and it was a very factual sequence but Jer when we put Jerry's score under it it all of a sudden it became epic it became like this is a, some Herculean task that these lads are undertaking and it's important and that's where, to go back to the kind of anthropological side of things, the music, I think, can help reinforce this idea that this very ordinary stuff, this very ordinary life is important and it yeah. has value. Mm -hmm. So Raman is just one guy living in a small village on the edge of the Bering Sea. But when you pair the observational footage, the documentary footage with this score, it elevates him in what I think is quite a decent and honourable yeah. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good note to say thank you very much, Tom, for coming in and having this chat with us. I really enjoyed that. I hope it was uh, an eye-opener to people listening. And I hope people go and see your documentary in any of the venues that we mentioned. I so look highly recommend and, Losing Alaska. And uh, good luck with it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. I don't need to tell people here uh, in Alaska what's happening. Thawing permafrost that threatens homes and infrastructure, faster glacier melt, rising seas, melting sea ice that contributes to some of the fastest coastal erosion in the world. And I've talked to folks whose villages are literally in danger of slipping away. In one month, we measured, we lost 75 feet in one month. People who stay need to be prepared to be devastated by some kind of flood. Not a safe place. We're trying to 
move this village to a better, higher place. This village is completely divided. You have two travel councils. Families don't talk to each other. It's like I can use a scissor and cut the air with that. <laughs> uh, we're being accused of not having eight, years, eight to nine years of election when we proved them wrong. We had election all these years. And some of the smarter ones began following the money and realizing some of the money is not accounted for. I live in the United States and I've been to State of the Union, and this is home. It's a bureaucratic mess. You have to tell somebody. And we need to move. I hope we'll make it. I mean, I hope we'll get together. I hope we will unite. <laughs>